You are now listening to the November 5th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Apostles of Jesus. In today's episode, we'll consider Judas Iscariot, the 11th Apostle. Judas was a common name in the first century Israel. In fact, there was another Judas among the 12 Apostles of Jesus. The meaning of the name Judas is praise God. It seems like Judas's parents must have named him so that he would live his life praising God. The word Iscariot goes with Judas's name and he is often called Judas Iscariot. Just as Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth, with Nazareth referring to where Jesus was from, Iscariot in Judas Iscariot would likely refer to the place where Judas came from. There is a town named Kerioth in Joshua chapter 15, verse 25, and some biblical scholars think Judas is from this town whose name sounds similar to Iscariot. Another explanation provided by a fairly large number of scholars is that the pronunciation of Iscariot is the same as the Hebrew word that means hand over with consonants of SKR. In other words, Iscariot in Judas may refer to the one who handed over, so Judas Iscariot would mean Judas who handed over. If so, the name Judas Iscariot would likely have been adopted by the early churches to make it clear that he was the one that handed over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Today, we will consider Judas Iscariot and draw spiritual lessons that God gives us as we look at what Judas did and did not do. The three siblings, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, truly loved Jesus. One day, Mary came to Jesus and poured very expensive perfume on his feet and wiped them with her hair. When Judas Iscariot saw this, he became angry and chastised Mary, complaining that she just wasted 300 denarii. He said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii, which is equivalent to a year's wage, and given to the poor instead of wasting it by pouring it out on Jesus' feet, and ridiculed Mary? But his intention was elsewhere. Here is what's recorded in John chapter 12, verse 6. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Judas thought they could have sold the perfume for 300 denarii. Once that large sum got into the money box, he could steal some of it for himself. If we look carefully at the circumstances leading up to Judas selling Jesus with 30 pieces of silver, we come to realize Judas must have been very good at hiding his true nature. He was a thief and a greedy man, yet somehow he won the trust of the other disciples to be in charge of the money box. 
Think about who would have been the most appropriate person to be in charge of the money matters among the disciples. That would have been Matthew. He was a tax collector. It would have made sense if Matthew was the treasurer of the group since he was used to handling money. For some reason, however, Judas was taking care of the money. Somehow, he was given the responsibility of being in charge of the money. He must have worked on getting this task with a full intent to keep some of the funds for himself. When we look at the scene of the Last Supper, we see some evidence as to how well Judas put up an act during the three years he was with Jesus. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. If there was any suspicion about Judas doing something out of line, the disciples would have brought out his name right away. They would have said, Ah, it is Judas Iscariot. But they seemed clueless. They wondered among themselves, Who would that be? No one suspected it might be Judas Iscariot. Judas acted well, as if he was one of Jesus' disciples, in order to satisfy his greed. When his greed reached its peak point, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But then, he realized he was not going to get much monetary reward for being associated with Jesus, and he figured he needed to find a way to minimize his losses. Let's read Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 16 together. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Jesus Iscariot went to see the chief priests and asked them straightforwardly how much they would give him if he betrayed Jesus. After a quick deal-making, he received 30 pieces of silver from them. From that point on, he looked for a chance to hand Jesus over to them. Jesus was always surrounded by people. It would cause a big commotion if they tried to arrest Jesus while he was with the crowd so they needed to look for a moment when Jesus was alone, away from the crowd. Judas knew Jesus went to Mount Often to pray regularly. He decided that would be the perfect time to hand Jesus over. So he told the chief priests and Roman soldiers, Jesus goes up to Mount Olive to pray at night with his disciples. That would be the perfect time to arrest him. But because it would be dark, it may be difficult to find him. So I'll go there ahead of you, find him, and kiss him. Capture the one I kiss. Kissing someone at the time was a show of reverence and love. With a kiss, Judas acted as if he loved Jesus when he actually loved money instead. Although it was nighttime, the chief priests brought with them a large group of soldiers and officials to arrest Jesus. They were afraid something might go wrong. Then Judas Iscariot kissed Jesus as planned and handed him over. 
What made him do this? It was his greed for money. When we read the Gospels, we find no record of Judas Iscariot confessing Jesus as Lord. We find records of him calling Jesus a teacher or a rabbi. The other disciples confessed Jesus as Lord, but Judas didn't do that. Jesus was not the Lord to Judas. Apparently, Judas's Lord was money. Beloved listeners, who is your Lord? Who or what motivates you and leads your life? We will continue to share this story in the next lesson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. God bless.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Myler of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Key Ways to Pray for God's Favor. If you've been tracking with this sermon series, then you will know that a common misconception about God's favor is the notion that God's favor will be expressed mainly through physical health and material prosperity in this lifetime. The fact is God's primary means of blessing us in this lifetime is the spiritual. Ephesians chapter one, um, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing God could have given, he has given. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't bless us physically and material. materially. He often does. And the full extent of God's that sort, that type of blessing or favor is going to come in the new heavens and the new earth. In the age to come, those of us that are redeemed will know only perfection and God's favor will be upon us in the best of ways. Sin will be removed. The curse will be lifted. There will be no more pain, no more disease, no more death or dying. You can eat whatever you want and never gain weight. <laughs> Amen. Amen. And if we get to heaven and that's not the case, forgive me, but I kind of assume that it is. But in all seriousness, the very best part of the new heavens and the new earth will be the manifest presence of God himself. Revelation chapter 21, three says this, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. But as I said, this is in the age to come. In the age to come, God's full favor is going to be poured out on you and me. We are going to be in paradise forever. And it's going to be incredible. We can't even begin to fathom how awesome it's going to be. Uh, but it's, I, we just can't wait. Can't wait. Amen? But until then, we have to wait upon the Lord because we live in a dead, dying, and fallen world. And so we don't always have in this world the things that we think we need or that our hearts desire. But with that being said, that doesn't mean that we as God's children can't ask for God's favor in this life in tangible ways. God is the giver of good gifts after all, is he not? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That's Matthew chapter seven, verse 11. God can bless and show favor in physical or material ways to whomever he wants in any way he wants at any time he wants. And there are plenty of examples of this throughout the Bible. God showed favor physically and material to people like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, the nation of Israel, the early church. So it is not wrong for God's children to ask, Lord, bless me, bless me. But here's the key. Here's a key. And this is important that you get this. If it is God's will to grant what we ask, then we are blessed. If it is not God's will to grant what we ask, we are still blessed because as God's children, we know that he is working all things for our good and his glory as he conforms us into the image of his son in this lifetime. And folks, the greatest thing that God can do for you, the greatest gift, the greatest amount of favor that he can bestow upon you is transforming you into the image of his son, transforming you and me and causing us to be a sanctified and holy people in his sight. It's the greatest thing that he can do for you and me. And I'm going to say this. I said it in the other services, not in my notes. The greatest gift that God has ever given to me is my love of walking the narrow road. It really is. It is my, he, he's given me a heart that wants to obey him. I don't do it perfectly and I want to do it better, but I'm so thankful for that heart that he has put in me that longs to obey. And I, it's like the greatest gift. I love 
that. And if you're a believer, you know what I'm talking about. Um, God is transforming us. He's doing something in us that is so incredible. And it's going to find its completion in the new heavens and the new earth in which we are perfect people living in paradise with our perfect God. So here's what we're going to do today. I want to explore three ways that you can ask for God's favor. Three uncommon ways. I shouldn't say uncommon. Three ways that I think are neglected amongst believers, but we should be praying in this way. Now, before I go over those three things, before we ever ask for the favor of God, there's a couple of things that we should do. And the first is this. The first thing we always want to do is we want to check our motives. James 4, 3 says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Listen, if we ask for God's favor, only to spend it on our own fleshly passions and desires, we are acting no differently than the world around us. Anyone can pray selfishly. Amen? I do it all the time. I'm a pro. You don't even have to teach people how to do it. We're good at it. Lord, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Lord, make my life easy. Give me, make me rich. Make me this. Make me that. Lord, 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 Lord. Just pour out your blessings on me so that I am healthy, wealthy, and happy. The fact is anyone can pray selfishly. Rather, the prayers of a believer are to be marked by maturity, which will manifest itself in prayers that are ultimately centered around God's kingdom, God's glory, God's will be being done. God, this is not about me. It is about you. It is about your kingdom, your glory. I am simply a servant here in this lifetime. So an honest check of our motives is always important before going and asking God for his favor. The second thing to consider is this. What is it that we truly treasure? Jesus himself put it this way, Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. If what I treasure is ultimately centered around the things of this world and not the things of God, I have got the cart way ahead of the horse. The goal of every believer in this lifetime must first be this, delight ourselves in the Lord. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, 33. What's the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, 37. But love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The very first verse I learned after getting saved in 1987 as a 17-year-old kid, the first verse that I learned at a summer camp was this verse right here, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, we want the desires of our heart. We just don't often want the first part of that verse. Delight yourself in him. Seek him first. Love him with all of your heart. Listen, when your heart delights in the Lord, your desires will inevitably be for the things of the Lord. That's just the way it works. When my treasure is the Lord, not the things that I get from him, but when he is my treasure and I'm seeking him and loving him, my desires are going to fall right in line with who he is and what it is he desires. It's just that simple. So we must consider what it is we truly treasure. I could stop the sermon right now and ask everyone in this room as an application point, when you walk through this door today, what is it that your heart truly treasures? The third thing to consider is we must ponder our purity. Psalm 5.12 says this, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Before I come and ask for God's favor, I need to ponder the state of my heart. Am I walking righteously with the Lord? Psalm 84.11 says this, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those, say it with me, folks, who walk uprightly, who walk uprightly. Proverbs 12, 2 says this, a good man attains favor from the Lord, but a man of evil devices, he condemns. 
If we are expecting our prayers for God's favor to be heard on high, but we're cherishing sin in our heart, we should not expect those prayers of favor to be heard. Psalm 66, 17, I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. But if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Sin is ultimately the great disruptor in our relationship with the Lord. But here's the good news. Here's some great news. A true believer can never lose their salvation because of their sin. But a true believer can forfeit God's favor because of that sin. You can't ever lose your salvation. You're secure in him. No one can snatch you out of his hand. But his favor can be withheld when we're toying around, flirting with, and messing with things that he doesn't want us to have anything to do with. That is why one of the most powerful prayers you can ever pray before you ever ask for God's favor is this prayer right here. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Before you ever say, God, show me favor, pray this prayer. Lord, search my heart. Because the greatest gift you can give to me, Lord, is not the thing that I'm asking for, but is a heart that's wholly devoted to you. That's the greatest gift that you can give me. Lord, make me sold out for you. Make me in love with you. And the things that come from you are secondary. The last thing to consider is this. It is our posture before the Lord. Before before we ever ask for God's favor, consider our posture. Proverbs 3, 34 says, Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Psalm 138, 6 says, For the Lord is high. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. How many of you have ever seen a child in a supermarket who didn't get what they wanted have a tantrum? Yes. Now, there have been times I've, I look at those parents and I go, shame on them. My kids would never do that. No, but here's the irony is I stand in judgment of those parents that let their kids have a tantrum. And then I go before the Lord and I say, Lord, I want this and I want that. And you owe it to me. And then he doesn't give it to me. And you know what I do? Come on, God, you owe it to me. I'm that little kid. There's no humility. There's no, remember what I told you. The minute you think God owes you anything is the minute your theology will be off in everything. God owes us nothing. Period, end of sentence. We must come before him as humble children and we can lay our requests before him. He is our heavenly father. And if we, though we are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more will our father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But we must come before him in humility and say, Lord, not my will, your will be done. Your will be done. Jesus summed up the attitude of those who are to be his disciples this way. Luke 17, church, hear the word of God this morning. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he has done, he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We have only done what is our duty. As God's children, we must humbly trust that our heavenly father knows what's best for us and accept whatever he chooses to give or not give to us. 
And if he doesn't give something to us that our hearts desires, we don't storm off. We're not angry. We're not upset with our God, are we? We praise him whether he gives or whether he takes away. We praise him always. Now, with all that being said, that's the groundwork for what I'm about to say. I want to share with you three powerful ways that Christians should be praying and can be praying for God's favor in their life, but often aren't. So are you ready? Here we go. The first is this. This is an important one. Ask God to show you favor by establishing the work of your hands. God established the work of my hands. Psalm 90 verse 17 says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So often in my own life, I do stuff and I make a mess. And I say, I make a mess and I say, God bless this mess. I know you weren't in this and I didn't ask you to be in it, but there's a huge mess here. Will you please now fix it and bless what I've done? Instead of, instead of saying, bless this mess, how about even before I start, I say, Lord, show favor to these hands. God, establish the work of these hands, establish the work of my feet, establish the work of my mouth as I undertake what is before me. God, may you be in this. It is a prayer that Christians should be praying, but I don't know that we're often praying it because I know that I don't. I'm a pastor. There are days Days will pass sometimes and I'll, I'll be busy, busy, nose to the grindstone. And I'm like, I haven't even stopped to ask the Lord to bless the work that I am undertaking for him. Psalm 127.1, you know it well. Unless the Lord builds the house, say this last part with me. Those who build it labor in vain, in vain. And yet so often I'm building the chimney, building the garage, building this, building that, putting the roof on. And I haven't asked God to be involved in any of it. And surprise, surprise, the house creaks, the roof leaks. There's all sorts of problems because I tried to build that house in my own strength. Folks, it absolutely doesn't matter the nature of the work at hand. As believers, one of the most profound ways that we can ask for God's favor in our life is to establish the work of our hands. A great example of this, by the way, can be seen when the Israelites, let me give you an example. They came back from 70 years of exile in Babylon and they, one of the first things they had to do was rebuild the wall. They needed a wall around their country. <laughs> Nehemiah 6. So the wall was finished in 20, on the 25th day of the month of uh, Elul in just 52 days. And when all the enemies heard of it, all the nations around were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. Now listen to this. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. God established the work of my hands so that my enemies know that you are with me. God established the work of my hands so I can accomplish crazy things like building a wall in 52 days to protect the city that we dwell in. God established the work of my hands. Instead of saying, God bless this mess, God established the work of these hands, these feet, this mouth, this person that I am in my service to you. We see the same principle being played out in the New Testament as well. In the book of Acts, a Pharisee, a famous one by the name of Gamaliel, spoke these words about the early disciples. The early disciples are on the move. Is God with them? Of course he is. But the Pharisees don't know that. And so this is what he says. So in the present case, I tell you, he's talking to the other Pharisees, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, 
You will not be able to overthrow them. You won't be able to stop them. You might even be found opposing God. Listen, folks, there are things that are on your heart to do, whether it be for the Lord or in your neighborhood, in your family, maybe at your place of work, and you're thinking there's no way that I'll be able to accomplish that. You're darn right, you can't. But guess who can? God can. And say, so whatever the odds are, no, no matter how impossible the task is at hand before you, you're thinking there's no way this is going to get done. Oh, really? How about you pray this? Lord, establish the work of these hands Establish the work of these feet. Every step I take, guide me, guide my mouth, guide my decisions. God, be in the work that is before me. Christians can start praying this and should be praying this. By the way, no task is ever too small. Too often we only seek God for the big things when our life are filled with a a million little things, right? And I know what you do because I do it too. You have a big thing that you need to get done. And so you go to God and you go, God, if you'll just take care of this one thing, I won't ask you for anything for a month, right? Maybe two months if it's really big. And so we, 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 we try and bargain with God. God, establish the work of this project and I won't bother you with these projects over here. No, go before the Lord with all your projects. Lord, establish the work of my hand and all that I do. I am your servant and I'm here. I'm seeking you. I'm delighting in you. I'm here as your servant, God. So I go in your power, in your strength, establish the work of my hands. True story. And I, I didn't even have it in my notes, but I, I decided to tell it. When I was in seminary, um, one, of the, my, one of my favorite professors was a professor that I judged straight away, Dr. Henry Holloman. He's probably going to watch this. So. But he walked in the room, the first class, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's a nerd. He had a pocket protector, you know, and, and I'm so cool. Um, Turns out he's the most godly man, just to be even in his presence, to know, he knows the word. It's just incredible, man. I mean, just, I'm humbled in his presence. But anyway, one day he comes into class and I don't know how he, we were talking. He was talking to the class and he goes, oh, my washing machine broke this morning. And he was telling us about it. And we said, well, what are you doing? And he said, well, the first, my, he, and he's humble, man. He, he didn't mean this to brag or anything, but he just said, well, the, my wife and I were just there and we just prayed over it. We just said, Lord, we need to either get this fixed or replaced, but would you establish, you know, establish, go before us and take care of this. And I went to seminary for four years and I took Greek, Hebrew. I took a lot of theology. I took a lot of things, but you know what I remember? That story, that story. Establish the work of my hands and finding a new washer or dryer. God, it's broken. I don't want to make a move without you. Okay, secondly, a second way that we can ask for God's favor that is significant that Christians often don't do is this. Show favor to me and my house. Show favor to me and my house. Proverbs 3.33 says this, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. The home, of course, is the place where so many important things ultimately take place. So we would be crazy not to ask for God's favor in this area, yet I'm not sure Christians are asking for it. I can go days, weeks, and months without asking for this in my own family. Psalm 115, 12, the Lord has redeemed us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your, say it with me, children and your grandchildren. God, bless my house. A great example, and there's lots of, bi- lots of examples in the Bible of God showing favor to people's households. Uh, 2 Samuel 6, 11, the ark of the Lord ended up in the house of a guy by the name of Obed-Edom. 
And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Another powerful example of God blessing not even an Israelite. In this case, it was an Egyptian who had an Israelite servant, okay? And that was Joseph, who ended up in Potiphar's house. Genesis 39 says this, So Joseph found favor in his sight, in the sight of Potiphar, and attended to him. And he, Potiphar, made him, Joseph, overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, from the time that he made him overseer in his house over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Now listen to this. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and what? Field. I'm going to bless your house. I'm going to bless your field. I'm going to bless your family. God's favor can be poured out on our families if we ask for it but I'm not so sure we're asking for it. Ask God, you guys, to establish the work of your hands. Ask him to bless the house in which you dwell and watch what he can do. Now, when we think about God blessing our households, we often think, well, Lord, bless me with $10 million because that'll just, that'll take care of everything. Maybe 15, let's just round up to 15 just to make, eh, 20, 20 is good. But the fact is, folks, there are, no pun intended, a million other ways in which God can show favor to our households other than financially. For example, God can show favor to a person's home by protecting that house from division and dissension. Folks, we live in a divisive world full of dissension. The home should be a place of security where our kids and our grandkids can know this is safe. So ask God, God, make this a place, make my home, make my home and not, not just your home. I mean, your immediate, you and your spouse or you, whatever your house is, but my house, my, my offspring and all that are associated with my house, let them find my house to be a place of security, stability, contentment, and peace. We can ask for God's favor by asking him to open the hearts of our children and grandchildren, or by giving our family a good name in the community. Listen, being a Christian in this day and age isn't easy, but that doesn't mean that we can't pray, God, let my family's name be honored in this city in which I live. As we live for you, God, show us favor in this way. What is so interesting about this is that God is probably blessing each of our homes and has been blessing each of our homes this last week, this last month, this last year, in so many ways that we are totally unaware. So we should probably not only be asking God, show favor to me in my house, but God, give me eyes to see when you do it. Amen? I bet that most of us could stop today and reflect and say, God, have you been blessing my house? And probably have a list a hundred things long, a thousand things long by the end of the day. So God bless my house, me and my house. Lastly, we can ask God, and this is an important one, God, show favor, help me by showing me favor in the eyes of those who have authority. Genesis 39, 21 says this, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Wait a minute. Joseph was just in Potiphar's house and was overseeing all that Potiphar had. What in the world happened? Well, what happened was Potiphar's wife came on to Joseph. Joseph's a godly man, wouldn't do that. And so Potiphar's wife said, hey, he came on to me. And so he gets thrown into prison. He gets thrown into prison. Well, that's a pretty bad situation, right? How is God going to meet you in prison? How is God going to show you favor in prison? Listen, I don't care if you're in a dungeon. 
God can show you favor if your heart is wholly committed to him and you need his favor. Guess where God's favor can show up? In a dungeon. There it is right there. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Wow. Go figure. Here's why this is important, you guys. Here is why this is so critically important. Everybody just listen to this. I suppose if you get nothing from my sermon, get this. We live in a day and age where we often feel helpless with those that have authority over us. We go, man, this world is big. The governments are big. Things are crazy. Things are out of control. We're just along for the ride and there's nothing we can do. Really? I don't care who holds all the marbles, who has all the gold, who's making all the rules. You and I have something that we can do in those situations. God, show me favor in the sight of those who have authority and watch what God does. I don't care if that is a prison guard or anyone else. God can do just that if we will ask him. But I'm not sure we as Christians are asking. God, establish the work of my hands. God, establish or bless my home. God, help me by showing me favor in the sight of those who have authority over me. In one way or another, we're all subject to someone. When I say someone, who comes to mind? Do you feel helpless with regard to that person? You don't have to. What does the Bible say? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it like a water course wherever he wants. Amen? Doesn't matter if it's king or prison guard. That person's heart is in the hand of the Lord and he directs it like a water course wherever it is going. Do you want favor in the eyes of your boss? Ask for it. If you want favor in the eyes of your neighbors, ask for it. If you want favor in the eyes of your own family members who maybe haven't liked you all that much, ask for it and watch what God can do. And you're thinking, there's no way, God. They hate me so much. There's no way, really. Is the God that you follow not able to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants? Including showing you favor at any time. Exodus 3.11. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Listen to this. They're slaves. The, an entire race of people are slaves in Egypt and God shows them favor in the sight of those that are holding them captive. Is there nothing our God can't do? And then it says this. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Daniel 1.9. Again, Daniel's in the Babylonian exile at this point. He's a slave. And what does it say? And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Folks, it doesn't matter who has the authority, how hard-hearted that person might be, or how dire the situation might seem. God can grant favor if we will just ask him. Paul commanded the early Christians to pray for what? Favor in the sight of kings. First of all, then, I urge you, that supplication, prayer, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in high positions. To what end? To this end, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly and quiet life and godly and dignified in every way. God, show us favor in the sight of the king so that we can live for you. Dignified lives, quiet lives in this generation. Again, too often the temptation is to feel helpless with our, those that hold all the marbles. Folks, you don't have to. Start praying for God's favor. God, establish the work of my hands. God, show favor to my house. God, show me favor in the eyes of those who have authority. As Christians, when we start praying this way and we're delighting ourselves in the Lord, don't be surprised when God starts answering. By the way, you want a really powerful example of God showing favor to someone in very difficult circumstances? The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's on a boat. He's going to Rome. He's a prisoner. He's going to appeal before Caesar. And the boat sinks. 
The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion wishing to save Paul. Well, well, well. Go figure. Kept them, that is the soldiers, from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on the planks are pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought to safety on the land because one centurion wanted to show favor to the apostle Paul. Listen, folks, I don't care if you're in a prison or if you're on a ship that is sinking, you can ask for God's favor in that situation. Amen? You can ask for God's favor on a sinking ship and God can respond by saying, you got it. You got it. So folks, go ahead and ask. It's okay. Check your heart, check your motives, delight yourself in the Lord, seek him. Because when you do, your requests are gonna fall in line with what he did. Your desires are gonna become his desires and you ask and watch what God does. It doesn't mean that he'll always answer yes. But even if he doesn't, we're still blessed, right? Because he's working all things for our good and his glory as he conforms us into the image of his son. Just know this, it's okay to ask. You do not have because you do not ask. If then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father and have give good things to those who ask him? What I'm going to do here is I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to leave a little time for you to ask God for his favor, whether that be over your family or the work of your hands or whatever it might be. Maybe there's somebody in authority over you and it just seems a dire situation. Maybe you can ask for favor there. But before I do, I finish with this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. And Lord, we thank you for the spiritual favor that you've shown us in this lifetime. God, every spiritual blessing you could have given us, you have given to us. And Lord, you're conforming us into the image of your son and you have paradise awaiting us. But until then, God, may we find, may you find us to be a people who seek, are seeking you and loving you and delighting in you. And God, you know the desires of our hearts in this room and those watching online, lots and lots of people with lots of different desires. And so God, we come before you now and we bring those desires to you and we lift them to you. So right now, go ahead and lift your prayer requests and ask for God's favor wherever it is you wish. Father, we know that you hear us and we lay these requests at your feet for your favor in each specific way. And God, as humble children, we will receive whatever the answer is, but we thank you for hearing us. We thank you that you are a good, good God and that your favor is upon us. We love you and we thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. And the church said with me, amen. Hey, God bless you guys. We'll see you later.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Even though you already know them and have been established in the truth, which is present with you, you already know it. He says, therefore... Because practicing these things keeps one from stumbling eternally because it's an evidence you're truly saved. Therefore, I'm always ready to remind you of these things. And what are these things? It's everything we've seen in verses 2 to 11. Everything we've seen. The tremendous truth about God's precious and magnificent promises. Everything we need for life and godliness the manifestation of a real relationship which makes us useful and fruitful in our knowledge of Christ, the reality that we can be short-sighted and blindsided, but we need to wake up. We need to practice those things in the context of a real relationship with Jesus. Therefore, verse 12, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. You know, godly shepherds don't fear what people think. Oh, they've heard it before. I don't want to say that again, right? If what you hear here is always new and different, I would be concerned. You should be hearing the truth of God over and over and over and over again. Therefore, Peter says at the end of his life, as we're going to see, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. Even though, notice what he says, and here's their relationship to those things. You already know them. You already know them, believers. And you have been established in the truth which is present with you. This is truth. 
These believers already knew what Peter was speaking about. The word speaks of having come to that knowledge in the past and that knowledge affects you today. They already know it. He's saying you all already know it. They already know we have everything pertaining to life and godliness to the true knowledge of Christ. They already know he's given us his precious and magnificent promises. They already know we are to be actively becoming more like Jesus by faith, diligently supplying these things. They already know it. And we as believers should know these basic truths. It's even basic to our salvation. It's all from Jesus. It's all revealed in his word. But not only should we know these truths, we should be established in them also. You can know something and not be established in it. The term established here comes from the Greek word sterizo. We get our word steroids from it, right? It means setting something up so that it is immovable. Setting it up so that it is immovable. He says, you already know them, you already know it, and you have been established. You have been set up in the past, and it is immovable in regards to these truths, which are present with. They're with you. God's word is on your heart, right? God had established them in the truth. It's done and it continues to affect them this day. Now, folks, if you do not know these truths and have not been established in them, you're at fault. You're at fault because you've either placed yourself under bad shepherds, or you weren't listening to good shepherds, or you've kept yourself from sound teaching, or worst of all, you can't be established because you don't know the Lord. Peter assumes that every single one he is speaking to, believers here, have been established in these truths. He says, you all have been established. It's a done deal. It's already happened. So why does Peter share what he shares? Because even though we know it, and we have been set up immovable in it, we become forgetful. We are forgetful people, and we need to be reminded on a continual basis. Therefore, he says, therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things. The term always ready could be translated unceasingly. I will continue over and over and over again to remind you of these things. And it's the truth of Scripture. It's the Word of God. Look at chapter 3 for a second. Chapter 3, verse 1. Very interesting what he says here. It's parallel to what we're seeing here. But you'll see in this book that there's the warnings about bad guys that twist the word of God and Peter encouraging them to stay focused on the truth of God and the God of the truth. Look at Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your mind by way of reminder. And then notice what he says in verse 2. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of our Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The word of God came through the apostles and prophets. And he's saying, I'm on my way, I'm going out, as we're going to see in a minute, and I am writing to stir you up by way of reminder about God's word. God's word, the truth that is present with you. Truth that is present. Faithful shepherds will continue to teach the Word of God, over and over again. They'll continually remind you of dependence on Christ and reliance on His Word and confession of sin and faith in Him and obedience. They're going to remind you over and over and over again. And it is right. Here we see the heart of a faithful shepherd, Peter. Remember, after Peter denied Jesus three times, 
After Jesus rose from the dead, he met Peter on that beach. You remember what he said to him? Turn to John 21. John 21. The Lord Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter has gone fishing. And the Lord Jesus so graciously reveals himself to Peter. Peter, having swam to him, is comes to the beach and breakfast is ready. John 21, verse 15. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. Now, in the Greek, it literally means feed, boska. Now, when you tend sheep, that's feeding sheep. It's a correlation. Your new King James will say feed there. Feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, shepherd my sheep. Verse 17, and he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. That's a great answer, isn't it? You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend or literally feed my sheep. Peter was faithful to that calling. He's about to go to be with the Lord. We're going to see that in a moment. He was feeding and he was always ready to remind them of the word of God. He wasn't feeding them stories and movie clips. He was feeding them the word of God that they had been established in the truth of God that came from the holy prophets and the Lord's apostles. You see, the world is always looking for something new. Always looking for some new thrill, biblically or whatever. The worldly church is doing the same. But faithful shepherds consider it right to remind believers of the truth they already know and have been established in the Word of God. Indeed, the Lord Jesus, you can look at the Gospels. A lot of his teaching, he's sharing it again and again. He's repeating it. Look at Romans chapter 15. The Apostle Paul considered it right to remind of the truth. Romans 15, 15. He's going to speak of this entire letter of Romans, which is a wonderful letter. And notice what he says about it. Romans 15, 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to what? To remind you again, because of the grace of God that was given me from God. To remind you again. Philippians chapter 3, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me, but it is a safeguard for you. We need to be reminded of the realities of a genuine relationship with Christ if you're a true believer. And folks, remembering is extremely important because it could be an evidence that we never actually were established in it if we don't remember if we're continually, habitually forgetful. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Lord Jesus warned the Israelites concerning pride and self-sufficiency, the things of those who don't know Christ, because he was bringing them into a good land, and he told them not to forget. And how not to forget? So as to obey the word, by the way. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is the Old Covenant, but let me read it. Deuteronomy 8, verse 6. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, walk in his ways and fear him. There you go. That's the overview. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. This is verse 7 of Deuteronomy 8. A land of brooks of water, fountains and springs, 
flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity, in which you shall not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. Now, when you have eaten and satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. But notice verse 11. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his ordinances and statutes, which I am going to say. Beware that you forget God, not practically seeing, but forget him by not obeying him. Beware. Beware of that. He says, lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and gold multiply, all you have multiplies, and your heart becomes proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through a great terrible wilderness with fiery serpents, scorpions, thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water out from the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna, in which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good to you in the end. Isn't that great? Otherwise you might say in your heart, my power and my strength in my hands made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which you swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve and worship them, I testify against you that you shall surely perish, like the nations the Lord makes perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord, your God. Forgetting is a very serious thing, and it may be an evidence that maybe we didn't know the Lord. But for we as believers, we've been established in truth. We've been established in it, and yet we are a forgetful people. And we need to be reminded. And Peter says, I will always be ready to remind you. I want to ask you, are you in a place to be reminded You see, some people choose teachers after their own desires who will tickle their ears. We need to choose teachers who will faithfully declare the word of God and remind us of the truth. Remind us. Peter was faithful. We'll notice, continuing, that faithful shepherds do the right thing. And guess what that does? It awakens us of our spiritual slumber. Verse 13, back in 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, again, this is all speaking of what we've done and spent the majority of our time on, so we'll roll through this pretty quickly, but it's pretty simple and straightforward. Verse 13, and I consider it right. I reckon it to be righteous. That's literally what it says. As long as I am in this earthly dwelling, the term dwelling is literally the word tent. You see, right now, our souls, our spirits are inside our earthly dwellings. This is our tents. And when we die, our tent goes in the ground. And our spirit goes to be with the Lord. And that's if you're a believer. And that tent will be raised some other time. But he's saying right now, while I'm still alive in this flesh, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus has made it clear. I reckon it right to do the right thing. The right thing is to do what? To stir you up by way of reminder. As long as I'm still alive, and notice he says the Lord Jesus has made it clear he's going to go. The Lord Jesus has made it clear your time is almost gone. Just like he did with Paul. Paul knew he was being poured out as a drink offering, Second Timothy. Peter's saying, I'm about to go. I'm about to leave this earthly tent. Right? Do you remember what Jesus said in the very verses right after the ones we read in John 21 earlier? 
He said to Peter, truly, I say to you, you were younger, used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, and that's right now, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish. And he said here, now this, he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. You see, Peter would be taken and the historical account is that he was crucified. But he certainly stretched out his hands, was taken and bound, or whatever that means, and taken to his death. He knows that's coming. The Lord Jesus has made it clear, and he says, I consider it right. Wow, there's no retirement for shepherds, folks. I consider it right to remind you these things until the Lord takes me away. If you've been called to preach and teach the word of God, I don't see anywhere where it says at this age, retire and stop doing it. Unless the Lord takes you home or you can't physically do it. Then the Lord is making that clear, isn't he? Peter was faithful. The term to stir you up literally means to wake you up or to arouse you from sleep. And it came to be a term that spoke of stirring something up. You know, when you're aroused from sleep, it's like, you know, right? I am considering this right to do this by way of reminder. Folks, godly shepherds wake us up from our spiritual lethargy and our spiritual sleep. We start to forget on a practical basis that we have everything we need for life and godness through the true knowledge of Jesus, that we don't need to go to other places, we don't need to go to other people, we trust Jesus Christ. We begin to forget those truths that we have as precious and magnificent promises on a practical basis. We begin not to manifest his character in our lives. He says, it's right for me to wake you up by reminding you of what you already know and have been established in. We saw that in chapter 3 of Second Peter. It's the word of God, right? It's the word of God. I want to ask you, are you being reminded of these things? Are you being awakened by the word of God? Godly shepherds will do that. Peter was godly, and he was going to do it till his death. Faithful shepherd. Jesus said, tend my lambs, feed my sheep, and he did till he died. Praise the Lord for a faithful shepherd. Lastly, notice faithful shepherds are diligent to remind us the word so that we can call it to mind at any time. Not just that we'll be woken up, but that we'll be able to call it to remembrance. Look at verse 15. We finish up with this. And I will also, along with that, be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. As I mentioned before, the apostles at the end of their lives were pointing to the scriptures as sufficient. As sufficient. I will be diligent, make every effort, not only to do what is right and stir you up by way of reminder, but also that you would be able by reminder to call these things to mind. Call them to mind. You see, godly shepherds share the word of God so that you can call it to mind when they're not around. To call it to mind. Faithful shepherds share the word to wake us up so that we don't forget why Jesus saved us, what he's doing in our lives. And they share the word so that we will be able to call these things to mind. The truth that we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Christ. The truth that we have his precious and magnificent promises. They're precious. They're worth everything. They're magnificent. They're the greatest. They're his promises. He will do what he says that we may grow as we'll see in respect to salvation. That by faith we are to be diligently making every effort to supply, to practice 
moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godness, brotherly kindness, and love. And they should be increasing, and if they're not, I'm useless and unfruitful. Let me ask you this. Are you being reminded of these wonderful truths? Not little truths that make your life better, but truths about following Jesus Christ. Is the word dwelling richly? Colossians 3. Has God's wisdom entered your heart? Proverbs 2. If what you've heard from the beginning is abiding in you, you will also abide in the Son and the Father. 1 John 2.24 Brothers and sisters, we're a forgetful people. And God knows that. In our flesh, we're prone to forget truths that we have known and do know and are established in. But God in his graciousness has granted those to remind us, to stir us up, to awaken us out of our spiritual slumber so that we can recall these things to mind. Today we've seen Peter's a godly shepherd, faithful to the end. He made every effort to do so. Shepherds, are you faithful to your calling? Are you stirring up those in your charge by way of reminder the grand truths of Scripture concerning a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, we're forgetful. We need to be reminded. We need to be woken up. Some of you today need to be woken up because you're useless and unfruitful, and God wants you to be useful and fruitful in your relationship with him. Forgetfulness is very dangerous, but God is gracious to remind us. I want to close with some verses from Psalm 119. On first listen, you might think the psalmist sounds prideful, but it's not prideful. It's the evidence of someone whose heart is right. Psalm 119, verse 16. I shall delight in thy statutes. I shall not forget thy word. Psalm 119, 83. Though I become like a wineskin in smoke, I do not forget thy statutes. Though things are bad, I don't forget your word, God. Psalm 119, verse 92. If thy law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for thou hast revived me. Psalm 119, verse 109, my life is continually in your hand, yet I do not forget thy law. Psalm 119, 141, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget thy precepts. Psalm 119, verse 153, look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget thy law. And the last two verses of Psalm 119, verse 175, let my soul live that I might praise thee, and let thy ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep to the humility. Seek thy servant, for I do not forget thy commandments. Be committed to remember his word, to be placed unto those who will remind you, to remember the great truths that you have known and have been established. Yet.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.